So we, I, I can't remember when we talked about this. I mean, it was, it was recently, and I feel like it was when we talked about, um, in 1 Corinthians 15, about the resurrection. But we were talking about, kind of we were talking about pranks. Um, so I want, <laughs> I want you to think about the biggest prank that you pulled on someone or that you had pulled on you. And the reason I remember this, I remember talking about my uncle who, they pulled a prank on him when he was a kid in, in Alabama to go get striped paint. You guys remember that? And uh, we talked about snipe hunting. And so I have a, I have a side of my family. Um, so I don't need to share my, that wasn't, that wasn't the biggest prank they pulled on me. Um, there was one even bigger, but uh, I want to hear from you guys. <laughs> All right, any, any of you guys pranksters? You're like, you like to pull a good prank? No, some of you, some of you. Just minor pranks, not elaborate, Okay, so we should ask Kay what the biggest prank that... How is it living with Grace? I'm here by Grace. It's always fun, always on your toes. It's not over. It's not over. <laughs> it's still going on. Yeah. Friends in college that while we were eating dinner, somebody snuck out and moved my car. So when we came out, I literally was, back then we had pay phones, not cell phones. But I'm dialing 911 to report a stolen car. So it went on for about 10 minutes. I mean, I ran all over the parking lot. Yeah, that is a good one. That's a good one. The old classic, move your car. <clears throat> what about being party to a good prank? Yeah. Party to a good prank, okay. had a daughter who was having a birthday on the West Coast. We went out to visit with her friends. We were up there having a good time, sitting around, having coffee, doing a puzzle, and there's a knock on the door. And nobody gets up to answer the door. She steps up to answer the door, and her sisters from here is on the West Coast to wish her a happy birthday. And everybody was in on the surprise except the birthday boy. So, good surprise, good prank. I tried to get them to put that on funniest video. And I think it would be worth about 10 grand if you just put that because of the reaction. It was a good prank. Yeah, is there, you know, some, and I know it's hard to do a, a prank because there's like the moral conviction. You're like, can I, can I be dishonest? Is that right? You know, but it's for a good cause. Um, <laughs> I was a kid, I used to make, call her Buzz. Yeah. Live in my grandmother's bed. Did you say you made them? Yeah, but, but you know, it's like an easy bake oven version of them. Okay, okay. <laughs> okay. Oh, I remember those. Okay. <laughs> On grandma? Man. I would hide under her bed and grab her ankles. We've seen. Okay. Shit. I only did that once. Yeah. So. Um. Yeah, 
when when uh, and and we'll we'll see if we get to it. You know, we started a little bit later, but um, as I want as as you kind of think about a prank, sometimes like when you think about a prank, if you step back, so I won't share my prank because it's long. Um, but uh, when you step back, sometimes you're like, how did I fall for that? You know, um, but you get caught up kind of in the moment, and you think like, if I really had thought about this, if I if I yeah, maybe if I didn't trust that person so implicitly, um, you know, that uh, I didn't believe their lies so much that if I just kind of like felt back, stepped back, then, um, you know, then I would have kind of understood what they were, what they were pulling on me, what they were trying to, trying to do to me. I also did find out in college that there's always a limit, like there's somebody will always one-up you. And uh, don't ever get into a prank war with that guy. Um, so I was like, oh, I'll pull a prank. And I was like, all right, we're getting serious. Um, I'm done. I'll take that last one and uh, pull away. Um, well, last week, uh, we're in Romans 1. And uh, I, don't know if I've, I don't know if I feel quite t- land, you know, with this, uh, this title, but when a culture rejects the gospel, um, it's at least particular what we're going to talk about today. And uh, we started to kind of look at that last week, but more in the sense before the culture rejects the gospel, what the gospel is as far as its power, why Paul was going to Rome and what he intended to do, which was preach the gospel. And uh, I wanted to finish up you know, a couple of the verses that we, we didn't get to last week because they are important to understand what we're going to talk about next. So in chapter 1, verse 14, uh, we, started, we, we talked about this, but I want to kind of read 14 through 17 and unpack particularly verse 17 a little bit so we can understand the verses that follow. So verse 14 in chapter 1 of Romans says, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Okay, so what does Paul say that is revealed in the gospel? The righteousness of God, right? Verse 17, for in it, and the it is the gospel that he's been talking about, right? For in it is the righteousness of God, or the righteousness of God is revealed. So what does that, what does that mean? Okay. Okay. Yeah, and when we, when we talk about, right, the gospel, we understand what the gospel is, and the gospel is the good news, the good news of Jesus Christ, and with the good news comes the bad news, right? And so when we think about, like, who Christ is, and we even compare ourselves to Christ, it then helps us to understand how we've fallen short. Even without Christ, we understand we've fallen short by understanding God's law. And so when we understand this idea about righteousness, right, Righteousness has that root word of right. So what is right and what is wrong? And so what is right is what God deems as right, and what is wrong is what God deems as wrong. And so in a legal sense, the gospel provides the means of being right in God's eyes through the atonement of Christ. Well, then Paul says that the righteousness of God is revealed 
in the gospel. He also says that it is revealed from faith for faith. So, first, what is a significant factor in the gospel? Kind of repeats, kind of repeats the word twice. Faith, right? Okay, so we got this idea of faith, right? So, faith, uh, and I, is there a, is there a, um, does anyone have like a footnote for how that also can be translated? So it's from faith for faith, or what's that? Faith to faith, okay. Faith by faith, um, and then if you had, I don't know, the ESV that I had was, there was kind of a footnote that said, it could also be beginning and ending in faith, right? So from faith for faith, or from faith to faith. Um, and so this idea is like the starting point, right, for our understanding the gospel is that faith is required for us to understand the gospel. So it's almost like you need faith to, to, to um, believe. And then we kind of talked a little bit last week, but is at the end of our, our spiritual journey. Does the gospel end just at the means of salvation? The point. What's that? Yes. And so, but even beyond that, right, that, that um, our lives, right, are continued in this idea of faith. And so the gospel provides us the strength of understanding uh, who God is and what he wants us to do in a sense of obedience. So you have like the initial justification, and then you have this idea of the sanctification, and then this understanding in, in full when faith becomes fact at our glorification uh, and the resurrection. And so, you know, Romans 10.17 says, right, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so kind of even with that extension is how is faith accessed. Faith is accessed through the preaching of the word, the studying of the word, the sharing of the word, not only in salvation, but also in um, our sanctification and our obedience in following that. So Paul kind of provides this idea that from beginning to end, uh, that faith is this important aspect of the gospel. And then he quotes uh, Habakkuk 2 verse 4, where in Habakkuk 2 verse 4, Habakkuk says, the righteous shall live by faith. So why is that important to understand? It's in contrast to the righteous living by works. Okay. Yeah. And so this idea, right, that the righteous shall live by faith. And Paul is going to go into that a little bit further um, and deeper as, as he talks about Abraham being, right, his circumcision being the seal of his faith, but his righteousness came to him before that circumcision. And so he kind of talks about, you know, as far as the Jews, what they're putting their faith in, is it the law or is it faith? And Paul says, faith is the important thing, and it was counted to him as righteousness by faith, right? So he was, you know, that righteousness was put on him through faith, but it wasn't the act of circumcision. It was his belief 
in the promise of God. And so we know that, right, that's the means that someone is saved and it is only available for the righteous, right? right? We can only be in the presence of God if we are righteous, but we know that that is impossible. Paul talks about that. He'll talk about that in chapter 2. Job talked about that in Job chapter 9. He says, truly, I know that it is so, but how can a man be in the right before God? If one wished to contend with him, one could not answer him once in a thousand times. He is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who has hardened himself against him and succeeded? This idea that, you know, when it comes to uh, coming to the, the, in the presence of God is that we are uh, far, far smaller and our abilities are far weaker than we think. And so no one can be right before God, and no one can even question or judge God. One in a thousand times, we would always fail. So faith is the way we live, and then faith is, in the sense, right, that we are, it is for the living, right? It is how we are saved, but faith is for those who are saved. And so it's not only... Uh, for us, but also the means of how we live our Christian life. Paul quotes uh, Habakkuk uh, in his letter to the Galatians as well, and he kind of expands upon this idea and combines a few of those things that we talked about that we'll talk about in Romans. So in Galatians 3, verse 10, he says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith, quoting there Habakkuk. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeem us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And then, you know, Paul will kind of come again to this idea in Romans 4, again, talking about how Abraham's faith was counted to him as righteousness. So, in, the, in a few short sentences, right, then Paul takes this idea of, you know, this confidence in the gospel for us, right, while also providing the means for our faith in Christ and what the gospel will provide. And so, you know, even at the very beginning of Romans, when he talks about how his life was changed and even how the Romans themselves, whose faith, you know, whose lives were changed through faith, all of the things that were provided through the gospel and the calling and the means that the gospel provides, we see there right at the beginning. And so Paul's focus, again, is to elevate the importance of the gospel and his ministry of coming to Rome and preaching the gospel, and why it is the power of God for salvation. And so then he kind of turns a little bit, right, and turns his attention to, you know, uh, to those that are not provided that means of righteousness. So in verse 18, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So why does Paul switch from the righteous uh, from righteousness to God's wrath? Because what? It's a dead end. Got to reach the dead end. Righteousness that man can achieve. 
Okay. Okay. Yeah, and, and often, right, the, Paul's purpose in writing uh, his letters are to the church, and so whose faith is, I mean, he doesn't ever shy away from those that are uh, lost within the church, um, I guess the corporate body, not the church as in those that are elect in Christ. But here in Romans, he, you know, he wants to kind of under, have them understand like where everyone sits in the eyes of God, and so while the gospel is the means of faith and salvation, for those that don't have the gospel, right, that it's the other aspect, you know, one of the other aspect of God's character. And so God is loving, but he's also just, right? He is merciful, but he is also uh, judgmental. Um, he is, you know, uh, and, and so then with that idea that he brings wrath as well as salvation. And so for them, right, um, if righteousness is revealed through faith, wrath is revealed for those who without faith. And so that's where his focus then turns. Um, so why is the, what, so, so when we ask that question now, what is the wrath of God? What is its focus? And why is it necessary? So this idea of like wrath specifically is, is you know, the Greek term is for anger or displeasure. But we have to understand in a term that it's not how we experience anger or displeasure, but it's how God can experience anger and displeasure, particularly focused at what? What's the, what's the anger and displeasure at? What's that? Ungodliness. Ungodliness. And so he says that, uh, you know, there, which is a characteristic of those who are, you know, of, of action, um, in particular those, right, uh, while he can love everyone, it's the ungodliness or disobedience as a result of sin, right, that God needs to deal with and to judge. And so we've seen this, you know, in, in plenty of occurrences throughout the Old Testament. And with the New Testament, you know, that's why some people say, God seemed more judgmental in the Old Testament. But again, the focus in the New Testament is in the edification of the church. And you just had a whole history of all the occurrences that God, right, was blessed Israel or God did not bless Israel and his wrath was set upon them. And so with all those occurrences, God has not changed. Um, you know, the flood would be one of those things in response to. Uh, man's sin, right? God felt so sorrowful for mankind that he flooded the earth to kind of start over. Also, if if we don't understand the idea of God's wrath, then the idea of justice would not be um, important to us, right? Because that's one thing that we all feel internally is this idea of justness. So as one writer put it, the wrath of God is a precise and controlled response to the belittling of his holiness. It's kind of an interesting way to, way to put it. And then J.I. Packer in Knowing God wrote, God's wrath in the Bible is never the capricious, self-indulgent, irritable, morally ignoble thing that human anger so often is. It is instead a right and necessary reaction 
to objective moral evil. So that's kind of God's response. And so his, he says that his wrath then will be revealed. Now, do you think that God's wrath needs to be revealed? Okay. So the atoning work of Christ wouldn't make sense if there wasn't an understanding of what Christ's atonement was for. His sacrifice on the cross would be minimized if, well, he just died for no reason. And so this understanding of God's wrath. Now, I guess it's possible that God's wrath does not need to be revealed but it then again feeds into his righteous, God's righteousness and God's character in giving man an understanding of what we place our faith in. Again, it builds trust and understanding who God is because he has revealed um, the consequences for sin. And so, uh, so the question then is, well then how, does, how is God's wrath revealed and the MacArthur Study Bible, um, kind of, kind of in this little footnote, has you know five different ways that God has you know revealed Himself and the various kinds of wrath. Um, so one category is eternal wrath, which is hell; eschatological wrath, which is the final day of the Lord; cataclysmic wrath, like the flood and the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah; consequential wrath, which is the principle of sowing and reaping. You do this, and the consequence of that is, is uh, something uh, baked into what we do. And finally, the wrath of abandonment, which is removing restraint and letting people go to their sins. That's where Paul will talk about in Romans 1 in describing this idea of wrath. And so, what happens to a society when man is left to their own devices. And so that's where Paul will go, but we'll get to, into that a little bit, you know, in, into that next time, specifically what that looks like. But right now he says the wrath of God is revealed in all unrighteousness and ungodliness, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The end of verse 18. Verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For all they, though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So, when we look at the world today, for the most part, and I would say like even in, in our world today, I mean, not, you can't, you know, globally you can say, well, lots of countries kind of abide by this, but particularly what we see in America, right? We see that we live in a world that is governed by rules, governed by order, governed by structure. Um, so it isn't perfect, and it always hasn't been that way. Uh, but for the most part, that's usually what uh, societies strive to be. But then 
we ask the question like, well, who accounts for it? Meaning, who accounts for justice like in our legal system? Like, why aren't we living in, you know, bedlam where violence is just happening all around us? Or are we? Now, I would say, right, you know, and I, yeah. So, um, now, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. Uh, But largely, right, you're not seeing, like, fiery car crashes everywhere and looting and shooting. And even in societies that have, like, that are marked with violence, um, that have high, high violence, like, most of the time, things are following order and structure. And so you say, like, well, why is that so? And why is it that societies have, like, adopted systems of, of justice, legal systems, whether they're corrupt or not, you know, all of those things, like, you know, why is that the case? And so I think that's kind of where I want us to think, like, where does that come from? And how does that happen? Right? Paul says... There is this truth that abides within us. Um, he even will expand on that in Romans 2, where in Romans 2.14 he says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. Verse 15, They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. You know, Paul says, right, that there is within man's heart this understanding of the law. It's not the Mosaic law, which the Jews follow, which is how God had revealed himself in ordering the society of, uh, you know, of his chosen people. But there are things that like follow that same pattern. And why is that? You know, there are, again, um, anomalies, uh, abnormalities, where you might go to a system and they really pride people on cheating. Um, you know, pranks are, you know, where society lives. But uh, if things were like that, right, we know that it has an end, uh, a destructive means. And so that's something that God has, again, put into uh, people's hearts and even his, uh, people's consciousness, and so what's that first step towards ungodliness that Paul says? So he's, at, he's, he's kind of with the assumption that there is this truth which in all people, and so what leads to you know, them straying from the truth? Okay, the suppression of that truth, right? And so that idea of to suppress... And the Greek means to hold back or hold down, to restrain, prevent, or hinder. You know, this idea of, he's ever, you know, uh, we had the, growing up we had these, uh, we had a pool in our backyard, and we had uh, these kickboards. We always thought it was fun to, like, put the kickboards, it's just like foam, and then try to, like, stand on them, and maybe, I don't know if you could consider it surfing, but try to stand on them, but the, this, the kickboard made of foam wanted to rise to the surface, and so you tried to hold it down as, as long as possible, and then they eventually popped up to the surface. This is the idea that for however long people can hold down the truth, restrain the truth, either push down or pull it back so it doesn't reach the light of day, is this understanding of what Paul is saying. 
And so um, that's what Paul's saying, right? Truth wants to be revealed. Truth wants to be known. But the unrighteous and the ungodly hold it down and they push it away. That it's written in their hearts, written in their conscience. But there are things that can be done that will suppress the truth. And he'll go and expand on that and, and look at that in just a second. <laughs> is Paul saying people are inherently good? Well, I mean, he doesn't go to moral like goodness, right? But I think he's saying that the idea of right and wrong is clearly known, and people, so he doesn't go that far. I mean, I would say Paul has understanding that everyone has a capacity for good, but no one has the ability for good. Um, the capacity for good, because of uh, that conscience and that understanding, but no one can actually fully do it. So, because we are sinful. Well, obviously, ultimately, when you get through each first, second, third chapter, mm-hmm. to the contrary, it's that we're inherently wicked. Right. Yeah. Even as believers, we have to we've gained access into the grace of God, knowing that it's not by works, because if, if we believe that, then Christ died for nothing, as Paul says. But, but ultimately, it's where we're ultimately depraved. Yeah, but, yeah, and, and exactly. So uh, we're ultimately depraved, but we know what we should do, we just cannot do it. And he would even go, right, yeah, as he would say later on, where as a believer, although some would maybe argue, was Paul a believer when he would say, I know what I should do, but I wrestle within the flesh within me and have this inability to do so. Um, So, right, yeah, yeah, in that, we have, like, what we need to understand what we should do, but we can't do it at all. Yes. Yes. So it's that image that man can still reflect upon and, and suppress within him. Because it goes on to say that it's, you know, God is evident within them. I know we haven't gotten there yet, but I mean, that's the whole. There is that image, it's there. Yeah. Um, and we know it, and we push it down because we're inherently wicked. Yeah. Right, and, and again, and the next thing he says, right, describing the truth, he says, well, what can be known about God is plain to them. So, you guys agree with that? Now, how is that plain to people? Again, I'll go back. There is the image of God within us. I would say it's also plain within the natural creation. But, uh, you know, ultimately, um, you know, I don't know whose audience this here is the Jews, and they had the ultimate revelation at the time uh, with these little testaments. So, yeah, well, it's going to be a mixed audience. We knew, we know, we talked about it last week that uh, when we looked at um, in Acts that Paul had known about Rome through Priscilla and Aquila, and Priscilla and Aquila was in Corinth. 
because Claudius had, um, the emperor had ejected the Jews um, out of Rome. So at this point, have some of the Romans, Romans resettled back, um, but or at least some that didn't hadn't left yet. But yeah, Gentiles is going to be a larger audience. But even within the culture and the context of Rome, the center of the Roman Empire, which is like filled with all of what that looks like. Yeah. Just the anomaly that pops up to remind us. I've never understood. I'm asking a question. I don't have an answer to this. So you're going to be a question, but you know, are they oh, anomaly? <laughs> you know, because they are archie for Hitler. You know, because they are the archie for Hitler. Um, Hold on to this question for next week, or just forget it, and I don't have to, and I don't have to answer it. Um, right? So, so good. I dodged a bullet there. Um, but yeah. So yeah. So why isn't society as bad as it could be? And that question will we can address next week because because when Paul talks about what a culture looks like without the gospel, um, all of the all of the things he uses to describe what a culture looks like looks like man that society is evil all the time so what is that restraint and the restraint that we have that we already know that there is truth within us so it's not um, being acted upon all the time but that is by the grace of God uh, Paul says you know when he talks about in second Thessalonians that there will be that restraint will be removed from a society and then you know, for better, for lack of other words, all hell will break loose um, within the society. So we say that's the restraining work of God, but also the preserving effect of godly people within a culture. You know, does a certain segment of the population believes this, but another you know segment of the population doesn't believe that? Is it based just on moral truth, or is it some of the people believe a particular way because they're guided by? You know, what is right and what is wrong in the eyes of God. And so it doesn't matter like what other country or what other culture, you know, uh, how they believe or how they vote on a particular topic. You know, we, we vote and believe what God says we vote and believe. And it's not, and we'll probably won't get to this in the next 10 minutes. Paul will, will talk about, um, the idea that, and we've talked about this with 1 Corinthians 1, that the people believing about what they're doing is right, they became wise in their own eyes, but they're actually foolish. And so we'll kind of expand upon that a little bit. Do you think he's saying that morality is inherent? Morality is inherent? Uh, well, I think, I think when you, what's that? 
Yeah, yeah, and that's what I was to say. Again, we go back to the question of knowledge or ability. Knowledge is yes, ability is no. Um, Exactly, and they, the knowledge of right and wrong is perfect. Yeah, in in their eyes, they don't have the ability. So, um, And, it was, you know, going back to the Nazis, that was a, my son likes to just throw out quotes. He said, you know, uh, Hitler said, uh, you'll have to correct me that, you know, if you say it, well, right? You guys, you guys, but you guys, you guys have heard this one. It's well in the one, right? Yeah. So, uh, anyway, click. Green light's still on. Um, right? Uh, if, if you tell a lie enough times, he said, it will become the truth. And I said, I don't think that's quite right. I said, I think if you said that if you tell a lie uh, long enough, people will believe it is the truth. So, right? So it's a subtle distinction. It's the idea that, like, truth is truth. Now, people can, under, can then believe, right, what a, a lie is. If you hear it long enough and if it becomes more widespread and more adopted as a society. So these anomalies that come up, we would say they're anomalies because that restraint is, is allowed to us to be seen. But when we see that, no one says, Stalin was a good guy, right? Hitler was a good guy. It's almost like everybody recognizes evil as evil, and atrocities as atrocities. Is it because they believe in the Bible and what God says? No. It's because God has written it in their hearts. And in the extreme is where you can see that stark contrast. It's in the middle is where we have some issues. But Paul will start talking about how this, this slide happens. But we won't quite get to that. Yeah. You have to um, consider the writer, the author here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. If not, of course, especially according to the sovereign will of God. I mean, these men have raised up who have been distinguished by their evil acts under the, the sovereignty of God. But yet, the level of sin that dwells within me is as wicked as the sin that dwelled in Hitler. Yes. And I am righteously judged for that. And there's no hope in me uh, other than the grace of God intervening in my life. So. I, yeah, I appreciate you. Yeah, bringing that to the service, because it, it might appear that I'm minimizing, right, 
our sin compared to another sin, right? Because that is easy for us to do. That's where Paul goes next in the next chapter, right? Uh, if you are, if you judge, right, then you are without excuse. He uses the same, the same thing uh, that you are now holding your, you know, other people to the same capacity. And even though their wickedness is is uh, more manifest, I would say that we suppress. We suppress some of our sins, not because we know it's right or wrong, because we fear the shame of like what other people will think about our sins. Where some of these guys were unrestrained and didn't care. What's that? But then we don't, because if you even use the speed limit, you might say, well, as long as I don't go as fast as somebody else. But you know you're going to be punished for it, and you're willing to take that punishment if you get caught. True, true. And I think where, like, you know, Stalin and Hitler and all of these, like, they don't come to power as individuals alone. They come to power with other people allowing them to come into power who are feeding into that. They might have gone further than some of those people thought, but they certainly gave them the will. And who are those people? They're people just like us, right? Um, Yeah. Correct. Correct. And, and I don't think Jesus is there on the left. I think he'd be clearly on the right. <laughs> 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 Bad analogy. <laughs> I don't know how much it picks up the audio. I never I never listened to it. So um well, you know, and so Paul says, right, that what can be known about God is plain to them, right? And you guys said, yes, it is, right? And so the first is, is how is it plain to them? We've talked about, right, this, this inside, internal idea, right? There is a morality, but most people don't point to God for that. It's like, well, we all have a sense of right and wrong, and, and it becomes more of like an ideal because it is internal, but God hasn't left it just to the internal aspect, right, as a characteristic. And even arguing about God, you can kind of, you know, parse words as far as, like, whether that is something, like, that we can solidly look at. But one of the things that, you know, Paul says is that not only it's internal, but it's also external, right? So truth is not your truth or my truth or his truth or her truth, right? Truth is truth. It's our truth. And it's plain and evident to see. Right? So the beginning of Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the earth. 
In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. They will then go to the law of the Lord and why that is good. But at the beginning, right, externally speaking, there are things that we can just see in the world around us that point to a creator. And he says in verse 20, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. And that phrase clearly perceived, right, is to to learn and understand something through careful consideration and thought. This idea is that if you give attention to the matter, you will see it. So how can invisible attributes be clearly perceived, right? If they're invisible, then how do you perceive them? And how do you perceive them clearly? Okay, so uh, so it could be the wind where it is like purely invisible, um, but how do you know the wind is there? Okay, so yeah, you can you can feel it, right? So there is a, a sensory that we can feel it. We can see its effects. We can see leaves blowing in the wind. We can see those things, and so you have to say, well, something accounts for the wind. Something is behind it. Uh, you know, if you walked outside and you saw a spider web, I mean, if you didn't see, you know, if you see a spider in the web, right, you know it's a spider's web, but if there is no spider there, you could account for it to be just something else, right? You know, maybe fairies made it. Um, and so, but something when we see the spider web should click and say something made that spider web. Something is attributed to creating that spider web. You know, most people will just walk by and you know either knock the spider web down if it's in your way, or just like glance at it. But if you stopped and thought about it, it was like there is a web. There has to be something that made that web. And so within the world, right, you then start if you give it careful enough a thought, right? Not everybody thinks this way. But Paul is pressing people to think this way, is that you can see in God's invisibility the attributes, right, that are left there that we can clearly perceive that there is a creation, it must be created. And so then he highlights two particular aspects of that. And we will talk about that next time, but one is his eternal power, and two, his divine nature. And so two important attributes of God as we kind of think about how he has left us an understanding that there is a God, that there is a creator, that there is a moral code within us. And Paul is kind of saying, like, just pull all of that together and think about the implications of that, that all people are left without excuse, that If there is a creator who created something and has given us a moral code of right and wrong, then we best figure out what right is 
and where it stops short is, then how do we um, interact with our creator? And that has to be revealed to us, and we can talk about that a little bit later. And then we'll see, as society goes down its downward slide, what that looks like within a culture. But it's kind of, you know, I wanted to at least make sure we, like, parse out some of these words and phrases as Paul helps us understand um, what this looks like, what the gospel impact is, not only on our lives, but where it fits within all of society. All right, anything else uh, 